our reading this morning then is from the book of Ruth. Uh, starting in verse 1, we'll be ending uh, towards the beginning of verse of chapter 2, excuse me. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Hey, well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Hey, well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Brad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. As you may have guessed, we're in a series in the book of Ruth, and it's important to remember, uh, especially where we are in the story, that uh, this book begins with just incredible heartache. Uh, you know, it's about a couple with two small kids. They're living in Bethlehem. There's a famine there, which means food is hard to come by. Uh, so they can't make a living. Uh, and they're just like you and I, right? They're just trying to survive, trying to get by. Here's a husband trying to provide for his family. Uh, and so because, in his worry, he decides to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab, which is about 50 miles away. Uh, and that ends up being a terrible, terrible mistake. Because uh, number one, God had said, look, I don't want you to intermingle with the people of Moab. Number one, they're a people of incest. But number two, they worship the false god Chemosh. Uh, these people even offered sacrifices, their children up as sacrifices to this God, Chemosh. And so God said, don't mingle with them. Don't certainly don't marry them. Don't have anything to do with them. But the problem is this dad's worries overrode his sensibilities. He knew he shouldn't have, but he didn't know what else to do. So during that famine, they leave Bethlehem, they go to Moab in order to save the family. And this is where it gets so ironic because shortly after arriving there, he's there to save their lives and the husband dies. And then uh, fast forward a few years, uh, his sons grow up, they get married, they take wives there in Moab. And then about 10 years later, both of his sons, both the sons in this family also die. And so all that's left is Naomi, the wife, and then uh, these two daughter-in-laws. Because, the, you know, while they were there, right, these sons 
had gotten married. And um, so Naomi, it's just the three of them. She has all three to think about, but she decides, you know what? My people, my friends, they're back in Bethlehem. There's nothing left for me here in Moab. So I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem. And she sits her two daughter-in-laws down and she says, listen, if you guys want a life, you're still young. You could still remarry here. You could still have a life for yourself. If you go home with me, you're gonna be considered by many people, they're a foreigner. You're gonna be considered an enemy of Israel. You're probably not going to be treated well, and I want better for you both, so you stay here. Well, one of her daughter-in-laws agrees with her and stays in Moab, but the other, a woman by the name of Ruth, says, no, 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 where you go, I'm going to go, and she professes loyalty to her mother-in-law, but not just loyal to her, to, to her. She says, I'm going to quit worshiping the God Chemosh. I'm not going to worship the, pe- the God that my people have worshiped anymore. I'm going to begin to worship the God of Israel. And that represents um, her salvation story, her made new story, right? And, then, and so this, that brings us to this moment. And, um, and so when Naomi arrives, you know, uh, Steve just read this, right? Some of her old friends, her distant relatives begin to recognize her and they call her by name. And what you need to know is that Naomi means sweet. And so they say, hey, Naomi, it's so good to see you. And she says, don't call me that. I don't want you to call me Naomi because my life has been anything but sweet. In fact, I want you to call me Mara. Mara means bitter. I want you to call me that because uh, the Lord's dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, here's what's so fascinating. Here's what I want us to notice. Naomi's doing what we all do, right? She's responding, reacting to the tragedies in her life, the trauma of her life, the uh, disappointment of her life. And she's told herself a little story about all that. And the story that she's told herself is the Lord has forgotten her, uh, that the Lord has dealt bitterly with her, that she has no uh, lineage, uh, no family left other than Ruth. That's the story that she's telling herself. And some of you are here today and you're kind of hurting and you're in a painful place today. And I have good news for you and I want to say something. Some of you are here and you would say, you know, if I were, if I were going to call the the first part of my life, the first chapter, I could maybe identify with Naomi a little bit. You know, I mean, life hasn't gone my way. It's not gone the way I would have hoped it has. And sometimes I'm really bitter about that. And sometimes I'm really discouraged and disappointed about that. Well, here's the good news. In the book of Ruth, tragedy and disappointment's only the first chapter. And out of that, you, you turn a page, right? It's chapter two. And I believe that for some of us here today, if we'll begin to do what we talk about today and we begin to get plugged in, I believe God's gonna create a new chapter, a chapter two, a better chapter in your life for you. And so stay with us. So uh, Naomi tells herself this story about her and about God. Uh, God has forgotten me. God has forsaken me. God's angry with me. Um, her life is over, you know, and, and, and God has just forgotten her. But here's the thing. Right under her nose is this amazing person, this amazing gift, and her name is Ruth. 
Ruth. And basically, Naomi's complaint is she has no name, she has no line, she has no sons. God has taken all that away from her. And all that's left is this young Moabite widow. And I mean, what can God do with that? But as we read the story, we begin to discover that through Ruth, and I'm just going to give away some details of the story that we're going to uncover next week, so that we're going to discover that through Ruth, God is going to give Naomi a grandson or a son named Obed, and then Obed is going to become the father of a man named Jesse, and Jesse is going to become the father of David, who will become the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. Israel, and that from David, there will eventually come a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Savior of the world. And so through Ruth, even though Naomi is lamenting that she has no heritage, no family, God is going to give her a lineage of kings and of a Messiah. She's going to do that. I mean, you know, and she would say, well, look, God's left me empty. He's forgotten me. She's just blind to the amazing grace of God in her life. And here's her reason for blindness. See, here's the reality about Naomi, and here's probably the reality about some of us. Naomi thinks she knows better than God how her life should turn out how her life could go. And because she thinks she knows better than God how her life should go, she can't see Ruth. God's provision, God's grace and mercy in her life right there. God's greatest gift to her and the best thing in her life. And here's what I would want you to to hear. Never assume, never assume, friends, that because life is not working the way you plan that God still doesn't have a plan for and through your life. He always does. He always does. And some of us are in exactly the same place. We have this agenda, right, for our life. And because our agenda doesn't match with God's, we think, well, God's forgotten about me. God's not working. And right underneath your nose could be a Ruth or a person or a relationship that you're just overlooking because of past disappointment and discouragement and even bitterness. And all through the scriptures, all through the scriptures, and here in the book of Ruth, we're told again and again and again that God does his best work through widows, through orphans, through weakness, through trials, through hardship and difficulty. He's a God that works through crosses, friends. And don't ever forget that. So let me give you a little preview. In Ruth chapter 4, the people say to Naomi, Ruth is better than seven sons. Do you know what that means? Seven in the Bible is the number for perfection. And in a society where a name and a line and a family is everything, sons were the ultimate commodity. So seven sons, according to these ladies, is a symbol. It's a symbolic way of saying, uh, Naomi, you've got the perfect life. 
And so when they say that, that's really what they're saying. They're saying, look, this widow, this outsider, this alien, this stranger, this young Moabite woman is better than seven sons. What they're really saying is, look, the grace of God in your life, Naomi, is better than your wildest and and biggest dreams for the perfect life. And I would just say this to you. If you're here with us this morning and you surrender your life, like, like Ruth did, you know, to God, then if you give your life back to God, I'm just saying he, he may not give it back to you in the way that you imagine, but he will give it back to you bigger and better. And, and, and so I'm just telling you, there's still, there's still a story to write and God wants to write a better chapter for you. Um, and I want to talk about that for just a few minutes because here's something else Naomi did. Naomi convinced herself, right, that God had forgotten her, uh, that, it, that, you know, she had nothing to live for. And, uh, and I want to talk about this this way because we all do the same thing. Uh, and so I want to just uh, talk about that for a minute. So, you know, we're often so careful, aren't we, to put um, uh, we, the things that we value, we're careful what we put into them. So if you're a guy here this morning and you love muscle cars, you would never dream, right, of driving that car down, putting some low-grade, cheap gas in that muscle car. No, you're going to put a high-octane, good fuel in it because you value that car, right? Uh, let's think about it this way. The food industries become, and health industries become a billion-dollar industry. Why? Because we recognize that what we put into our bodies makes a difference, right? So if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm probably not going to try to survive on a diet of Twinkies, right? Because what, what I put into my body matters. And yet, there's very little discussion, very little concern, very little conversation about the fuel that we feed our minds. And so I want to just talk about that for just a few minutes. You know, uh, so I mentioned the lineage of Ruth, that Ruth would uh, have a great, great, great grandson named David, and then David would father a man named Solomon. And so about a hundred years after Ruth, Solomon actually wrote these words. So this is an ancestor of Ruth, and here's what he said in Proverbs 4.23, be careful what you think, because your life is shaped by your thoughts. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. In other words, what you choose to think about shapes your destiny. It shapes your heart. It shapes your mind, especially in the way you respond to adversity. Um, In her adversity, Naomi told herself her life was over and she'd been forgotten by God. But we know that nothing could have been further from the truth. So let me ask you a question. What story are you telling yourself about your life? And what if, what if God wants to tell a better story through your one and only life. Listen, I don't know what your thought life looks like. I don't know what thoughts you're prone to on a daily basis, but I do know this. God wants us to begin to tell ourselves and others a better story about 
our lives. And so to help us do that, in other words, what I'm saying is you and I can choose to entertain better thoughts and therefore live lives with more peace and less anxiety. That really is possible, and I'm going to prove it. And to do that, I want to talk about two laws of the mind. They're true for you, and they're true for me. They're true for every person in this room. There are no exceptions. And the first law is this. Sounds fancy, but it's just called the law of cognition. And here's what it means. It means that you become what you think about. You become what you think about. So let's tease this out. Angry people are angry because they tend to think angry thoughts. Bitter people get bitter because they tend to think bitter thoughts. Right? Selfish people get selfish because they tend to think Sure, selfish thoughts, right? Anxious people are anxious because they tend to think what? You're tracking with me, right? On the other hand, loving people are loving because they think what kind of thoughts? Yeah, loving thoughts. Kind people are kind because they think what kind of thoughts? Sure, kind thoughts. Patient people are patient because they tend to think what kind of thoughts? Sure. And so all you and I have to decide this morning is, well, which of those two kinds of people do we want to be? So if I want to be a loving person, I need to train my mind to think loving thoughts, right? Something else that's so important, listen to me. How many of you flush a toilet at least one time a day? How many of you are so grateful that you can flush a toilet at least once a day? Listen, your mind functions, my mind, our minds function exactly like a toilet, and they have to be flushed. They have to be flushed every day. Otherwise, all kinds of crud and despicable stuff will start to gather and collect there. Learning to flush the mind is so vitally important. Um, And in the same way that Naomi overlooked Ruth, I think it's so easy for us as people to overlook the good things, the relationships, the good people that God has brought into our lives. And so I want to... just tell a story to illustrate this. So uh, several years ago, there was a very, very famous violinist. His name was Joshua Bell. Uh, And so uh, his parents figured out there was something unusual about him. And they said, man, we got to get this kid music lessons. And he was like a prodigy. He became uh, one of the world's foremost violinists. He became so famous and so wealthy as a result of his fame that he was able to buy a three million Stradivarius violin. Those were made around 1720 or 1730. They're widely known to be the best violins ever made, ever made. And so here you have 
one of the best violinists in the world, playing one of the best violins in the world consistently. He sold out concerts regularly. This is 15 years ago, and he was getting over $100 a piece for concert tickets. And here's what they decided to do. Uh, At the height of his fame, they said, well, what if Joshua Bell were to take his Stradivarius violin, his $3.5 million violin, and go to the Washington, D.C. subway station and just play, what would happen? And so they asked, like music experts, what would happen if Joshua Bell just played his violin in the the metro, Washington, D.C.? And they said, oh, well, crowds are going to gather, like tears are going to flow. You're going to have to do crowd control. You're going to have to have police there because people are just going to be so drawn to this music. Well, you can actually watch this video. You can actually pull this up online. Watch Joshua Bell playing. Well, and I'll save you the suspense. Here's what happens. 1,067 people just walk on by. They don't even notice. You know Why? They were thinking about other things. They were busy. They were thinking about all the things they had to do that day. And in doing so, they missed a master violinist. They missed the best violinist in the world playing on the best violin in the world, some of the best music in the world. And they missed that moment because their minds weren't dialed in. See? And so what are you missing as it relates to your home or your family or your marriage? Because you're so busy thinking about the next thing or the next activity or the next thing you have to do or the next mountain that you have to climb. Don't miss those moments, friend. Your friends, our minds are amazing things, but we have to own our minds. We have to take control. I'm going to walk you through how to do that. Now, before we move to chapter 2, I want to discuss one more law. Remember, I talked to you about the law of exposure. So we become what we think about. That's one law. Well, the other law is what's called uh, the law of, or I'm sorry, the law of cognition. This one, the one I'm getting ready to talk to you about, is called the law of exposure. And here's how this one works. You ready? You and I, Every one of us in the room, we tend to think about what we are exposed to. Uh, Now, this is a law as sure as the law of gravity, right? And yet we act surprised when this law affects our minds. So, in other words, if you drop an egg and it breaks on the ground, nobody goes, oh my goodness, how did that happen? We know how the law of gravity works, right? If you're walking down some stairs and you take a tumble down the stairs and you hurt yourself, you don't go, well, man, how did that happen? You know, right? The law of gravity is at work. And yet, when it comes to the law of exposure, you know, we don't, we're surprised, right? And so here's what I'm saying. It's this. Here's the idea. If I expose myself to violent images, I will have violent thoughts. If I expose myself to sexual images, I will have sexual thoughts, right? If I expose myself to troubling images, I will have troubling thoughts. Uh, 
if I expose myself every day to bad and fearful news, I will have a bad and fearful attitude as a result of all that news that I'm exposing myself to, right? And here's the incredibly good news about the law of exposure. You can actually put the law of exposure to work for you by beginning to expose yourselves to better things, maybe the Word of God. We've heard a lot of folks talk about that this morning, right? And you can begin today. And this brings us to these amazing words from the Apostle Paul that I wish Naomi would have known, but Naomi couldn't have known them, but you and I, we get to hear them. And here's what they say. By the way, these are game, this is a game changer. If we just did this one thing, every one of our lives would change. You ready? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Here's what's so incredibly amazing about these words. Paul assumes that you and I have the power and the ability to choose the thoughts that we have, to decide what we will think about. And this is mind-blowing because we're so used to going, oh, I'm just a victim to all these troubling thoughts that are ricocheting in my head. I have no control over it. And Paul would say, oh, yes, you do. You, just like you change a channel on a TV, you can change a channel in your mind. You can choose to think about what's lovely. You don't have to spend your life meditating on how they hurt you. See, you don't have to spend your life meditating on that divorce that you keep telling yourself you will never get over. And guess what? If you keep telling yourself that, that will be true. See, you can change the channel on your mind, you, get, you and I, we get to choose the thoughts that we have and the things that we think about. We are in charge of that. Or Paul would have never given us this command. This is so incredible. Uh, and then these amazing words. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. He says, we demolish uh, arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Here's the next phrase, the one I want you to take note of. He says this, and we take captive every what? Every thought. And we make it obedient to Christ. Well, how do you take a thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? Well, if you're thinking bitterly about somebody, and we know Christ doesn't want us to be bitter people, right? What do we do? We, we recognize that, oh wait, I'm thinking bitter thoughts, so I'm gonna change the channel and I'm gonna think better thoughts than that. I'm gonna think about something else. I'm gonna tell myself a different story. I'm gonna think about somebody that I love, right? So you're changing the channel. You're taking a thought captive and you're making it obedient to Christ by beginning to think instead on whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is of good repute, right? Anything that's praiseworthy or good in your life, see? 
So I'm just saying, look, heed the law of exposure. Be careful about what you expose your mind to. And be aware, be aware. Not only do you and I tell ourselves little stories or big stories about our lives, but we tell ourselves little stories about every interaction that we have with other people throughout the day. And we all do it. And you can begin to tell yourself better stories about those interactions. So, for example, you bump into a friend at the grocery store. The friend seems distracted. They're not really making eye contact. They don't seem that happy to see you, and you part. You may walk away going, well, man, I, I, I don't think they like me very much. Yeah, man, they, I, I thought they were a little rude to me in that conversation, right? That's the story. That's the way you're interpreting what just happened. They don't like me. I think they're rude. But what if... You walked away from that little interaction and you told yourself a better story than that. What if you walked away saying, hey, they must really be hurting. They must be distracted about something. I should really pray for them. I should maybe call them later tonight and check up on them and see how they're doing. Because I just have a sense something's not right there. You see... You see how incredibly different those two stories are? And friends, you and I, we have the power to control that narrative. You do. And so like Naomi, we in this room need to learn to tell ourselves a better story, right? Now, um, Let's move to chapter two. Let's turn the page and let's talk about another in these next couple of verses. Let's tease out one more big theme um, in the book of Ruth. So chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband uh, on her husband's side. Remember, she's gone back to her hometown. So now she knows people again, right? Uh, A man of standing. Everybody say a man of standing. His name was Boaz. I want to talk about what this man of standing means. That means that Boaz was a man of incredible internal strength. It means he was a man of integrity. He was a man of character. It also means he had incredible internal strength because he was a man of faith. He had a relationship with Yahweh, and because of that relationship, he was a man of standing. And because he had character and strength and was a man of faith, God had blessed him and given him property. So that was the result of being a man of standing. He had property. In this case, he has fields that he owned, and Ruth happens to go out into one of these fields. And then look at verse, uh, verse 2. Uh, Ruth the Moabite, it's interesting, Ruth the Moabite, you're going to hear this a lot in this story. You're going to constantly be reminded that Ruth is an immigrant, that she's a foreigner, that she doesn't belong in Israel. Ruth the Moabite. So this is a, a, little, bit of a, it's, it's a little bit of a dig, really, Right? She's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite, 
said to Naomi, let me go to the field and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone else in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So we're told Ruth went out and just so happened, just so happened. So we're, we're starting to bump up against this other theme in the book of Ruth. And, and it relates to something called the providence of God. Now, some of you are like, I, my eyes just glazed over, Pastor. I get it. But hear me out. The providence of God means that we, we experience the providence of God any time that God uses natural circumstances, normal, everyday occurrences to accomplish his supernatural will. So we say, well, you know, so it works like this. Well, you know, I just so happen to find myself in this field. And then it just so happens that, you know, by chance, I met this guy in the field. And then it just so happened that that guy happened to be a cousin or a relative to Naomi. And it just so happens that Naomi introduced me to this guy. And the story goes, it just so happened, and it just so happened, and it just so happened. And what we know that Ruth and Naomi don't know, who's at work in all that? Yeah, it's God. It's not luck. It's not chance. No, it's the God of the universe using ordinary, everyday circumstances to accomplish his extraordinary, supernatural will. The providence of God, it's so important to understand, and that's what we're getting here. Now, I want to talk about why it is that Ruth found her way to this field. Now, in Leviticus 19, you have what are called gleaning laws. And here's basically what God told the Israelites to do when they farmed. Remember, it's barley harvest. So they're harvesting grain. So God told them that whenever they went in the fields, they were supposed to be sloppy farmers. They were actually not supposed to get every grain, every kernel of corn. They were supposed to purposefully drop some along the way. And they were to do that on purpose, and it was God's way of providing for people that didn't have land, that couldn't grow a garden. And so they would come along behind, and that's what Ruth is doing, right? She's going along behind, and she's picking up, you know, what the guys are like tossing over their shoulder, dropping on the ground. She's just going, and she's picking up all that extra grain. Because she, nor her mother-in-law, they don't have any property. They don't have any standing, right? I mean, she's a foreigner. She has nobody in that country to represent her except for Naomi. And one other person whose name is not mentioned. Never forget that, friends. Never forget that. That's what the providence of God means. Someone else is representing you. Someone else is representing you. Someone else is representing you. That's the story of Ruth and Naomi. And, you know, it's just such a beautiful thing, right? And so this is what Ruth was doing. She's gleaning. She's picking up the leftovers. And we see in the next verse, as Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, as it happened, another version says, it just so happened. It just so happened. And again, there we are right there. That's the providence of God. And this is going to set up 
All this happenstance, all this God working behind the scenes is going to set up the next chapter of Ruth and Naomi's life. And guess what? You know what God's doing in your life through your ordinary circumstances, through, through your natural life? God is supernaturally at work writing the next chapter of your life. That's our God. See? And so I can't wait. So here's what we're going to do. A few weeks back, uh, Pastor Daniel was in uh, chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And he looked at chapter 2 through one lens. I'm going to look at chapter 2 through a completely different lens. I'm going to look at it through the lens of relationships. And as, as we're going to see as Boaz and Ruth begin to build a relationship. And I want to talk about the kind of people that we should want to be friends with, the kind of people that we should try to date, the kind of people that we should invite over to our house for dinner, we're going to see next week in Ruth and in Boaz. And so you don't want to miss that because not only do you want to be that kind of person, but you want to have as many of those kind of people in your life as you can get, right? Amen. All right, so listen, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you, pray for us. I'm going to ask our team to come up because in a moment we're going to take communion together and I'll walk us through that. But let's just talk to God together for a minute. Hey, Papa, um, would you uh, remind us, God, yet again, the incredible power that we have to tell ourselves better stories, to believe better things about you, about other people, about the circumstances of our lives. And so God, make us a people that dwell on whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable, whatever is above reproach, whatever might be praiseworthy. Help us to be a people just by the power of your Holy Spirit that take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And God, too, help us to be uh, alert and to be at watch in what you're doing in a supernatural way just through the natural circumstances of our lives. We can't wait, God, for you to turn a page and bring a new chapter into our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. All God's people said. Amen. Hey, listen, we have a few minutes left, and we're going to do something really, really precious together. So uh, the beginning of every month, we have the privilege of taking communion together. And communion is just the way that we choose that, well, we don't choose, we're commanded to do it this way, but it's the way that we remember the sacrifice that our Jesus made to give us a right standing with God. It's, it's a moment where we uh, ruminate together on what Christ has done for us, where we remember that it's something we could have never done for ourselves. In other words, we absolutely had to have what he did. Um, and so you're going to notice there are tables here at the front and the back. If you don't know what to do, I would just say this. Just follow a crowd. You'll probably get where you need to be. Um, and once you find your way either to the stage here, to where, for, the, for our purposes this morning, we're going to call this an altar, or you can find your way back to your seat, you will have collected two things. You will have collected a little piece of bread and a little cup.
We don't want you to drink that. If you find your way back to your seats, we want you to hold on to it. If you find your way here to the stage and prepare to, prepare to take communion here, hold on to that because in a few minutes, I'm going to come back up and we're going to do something really beautiful. Instead of you taking communion on your own or in isolation, we're going to do it together. We're going to remember together. There's tremendous power in that, friends. And so one more time, let me pray for us, and then we'll invite you to come and receive because the altar will be open. But one more time, a prayer. Lord Jesus, help us remember well your body offered up and your blood shed. Not randomly, not for my next door neighbor, not for my aunt or my uncle or my grandpa or my child, but you did that for me. For me. And so help us give you thanks and grace in a way that's fitting of your grace in our one and only lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so come now and receive the altar. It's open.
broken and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so come, Lord Jesus, but in the meantime, fill us, lead us, guide us, we ask in your precious name. Amen. name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you for worshiping with us. Um, I hope that you come back next week. And um, yeah, this is a special